Okay, this is another edition of Musical Explorations. This is your host, Ted Peterson, and we're going to continue our look at how music systems are used by composers and the different systems that were used to write music, write certain pieces. Okay, that was a piece I wrote. Actually, I wrote it for a movie called Zombie Cheerleaders, and, um, but they rejected the score. They said it was too intellectual. Okay, and I used a, a tone row system similar to uh, the serial system that we'll talk about that was developed by Arnold Schoenberg, although it's nothing like 12-tone music. We've seen some alternative to common practice tonality where that were developed by composers to extend the perceived limitations with existing tonality. Remember, we learned that ever since Bach codified the use of equal temperament systems, composers have been trying to find ways to extend tonality from tonic-dominant relationships. You know, remember this relationship. Tonic to dominant to tonic. Okay, that relationship defined most of Western music from the time of Bach onward up into our day. And composers have always looked for ways to get out of that whole uh, that whole restriction of of doing that and having that be important, or this, okay. That's, that's called a cadence, right? And there, so the composers were always looking ways to extend that cadence, extend those chords out from the tonic to the dominant. Establishing the key here, they've always been looking for ways to get around that. So to extend this harmonic language, you know, the language that a composer uses of chords and that is called the harmonic language, to extend it, and they also want to establish a personal style. So uh, a composer, let's say a composer who always wrote C, but a C that sounded like this. It sounds like it's a C, it's tonic, but it's impermanent. It's in what we call first inversion. Instead of... That's in root position. The C is in the root. In first inversion, the E is in the root. Okay? They're always looking for ways to get around that whole idea. So that would be a personal style. If a composer constantly used that and you said you all of a sudden you heard a cadence coming up and it was uh, you would come to identify that sound the first inversion sound is that style of that composer. You would have an idea that that composer wrote the piece. So always, and even today, composers come up with ideas that add to the existing language. They add notes to chords. They do all kinds of things, sequences and stuff, to make the language their own, make it more personal. 
And if they start being used by others, if this, if this thing starts being used by others, they get added to the music theory. Okay, that's happened a lot. I mean, it was a, all the way through the common practice period, extending tonality was the goal of composers, and it became known as that, the harmony, harmonic practice. That includes 7th, 9th, 11th, 13th chords, added note chords, secondary harmony, secondary chords, that type of thing. Establishment of keys without modulation. Those whole types of things were happening. A harmony book, let's say from the 1800s, okay, is substantially different than one written today by Schoenberger Walter Piston, two of the most commonly used compendiums of practice today. The reason is, is that the ideas and the type of harmonies they were talking about in the 1800s were substantially different. Uh, the expansions they were doing were very simple compared to the, the expansions we have today. They had something called the German six, the Italian six. It was a way to put uh, alternative chords and extend the harmony. They're always, remember, composers always try to find ways to extend the harmonic practice that exists. Not so much in popular music. In popular music, is uh, the music isn't as important as the song, as the words, those type of things. We also looked at alternatives to our major minor scales. We saw how composers revived the Greek modes, uh, but a little bit different uh, in different keys. In other words, instead of Dorian uh, D, it would be normally it would be. We have uh, guys like Carlos Santana who writes in Dorian G. So it's the Dorian scale, but in the root of G. Very common, and it's done, other composers have done it too. And, and we saw that uh, Brahms liked the Phrygian, things in Phrygian mode, quite a lot. And we looked a little bit at uh, the idea of progression and succession. So progression, co uh, chords that lead to a repose, a cadence, and succession, chords that don't necessarily lead to any kind of terminus. It's, uh, they just go on and on and on, like uh, in C, the second chord, and say the uh, third chord, back and forth, successions. The fourth chord, no cadence anywhere in there. Again, composers always trying to break the, the, the stranglehold of progression. They try to get to extend that progression out using successions and also create um, a cadence system without a necessarily a confirmation of key. This was another thing they were trying to do. All right, um, much modern, even folk music is made up of chord successions. So we've talked about that. Uh, we also looked at alternative scales like the whole tone scale. Remember we looked at that whole tone scale. There's no half steps in the scale. Remember our diatonic scale, like in C major, is whole step, whole step, half step, whole step, whole step, whole step, half step. Okay, now a whole tone scale has no half steps in it. And we looked at a pentatonic scale. It's like playing all the black notes on the piano. Five notes. And a lot of Asian music is pentatonically based. We looked at uh, synthetic scales, uh, symmetrical scales, where all the steps, a half step, whole step, half step, whole step, half step, whole step. And we looked at um, uh, artificial scales that you could make up, any scale that you can make up. Okay, that goes from C to C, you can you make up any scale. We can start it anywhere on A. And it's artificial scale, and then you use those notes in the scale to make harmony. So today we're gonna look at how tonal systems evolved into atonality. 
and we will investigate where composers took the breakup of this common practice tonality and these common practice principles and how they use them to create music without a tonal bass or how they use music to break the tonal bass. Also, remember, all the while this atonal music was going on, there was a whole other school of music that was, did not adopt this atonal style, and they were continuing to compose too. And we'll look at some of those alternative and other methods to composing. And then we'll look at composers who use some of the basic ideas uh, of tone rows, uh, and, but wrote a completely different kind of music, people like Elliot Carter. Before Schoenberg developed composition using tone rows instead of scales, composers had mangled the basic harmonic practices established mostly through Bach, Mozart, and Haydn. But trying to fit new sounds created by composers became a game of mental gymnastics. Most harmony books containing, uh, contain a chapter called Extended Techniques, where authors sought to analyze a specific work and fit it into an extended harmonic practice. In other words, they tried to resolve sometimes composers using chords that had nothing to do with a basic harmony and use them, and then they tried to justify them in the sense of, of this harmonic system. So uh, they said, oh, this obviously must be an A major, but this is the secondary dominant of the third chord in the, uh, in the scale altered to be a minor, and then it's relative uh, subdominant. I mean, they would have to go through things like that to figure out what this chord was if you were looking at it in the context of a, of a harmony. Co composers don't work that way. I'm a composer. I don't work that way. Every composer I've talked to has their own technique of working, and that's what we're looking at here. How do composers use systems to write music and what are the systems that become developed from them. So these harmonic systems, extended uh, techniques, chapters, usually end up being a lot of speculation and not much reality. The problem with these things are twofold. While the extended harmonies could be identified, the reason was often wrong. And while the explanation fit into a system, that system had to be really perverted to accept it. In other words, it, the, the system worked and then it, it didn't work. It, it broke down. Hardly a recommendation if you're trying to sell the, the uh, efficacy of your harmony book. If you, if you have a system that doesn't work, it's hard to, uh, to justify somebody purchasing the book and to, to find out about those extended techniques. The second main aspect is that theories of how harmonic functions work should give a clue as to how a composer writes. In other words, if you see a composer constantly using uh, this dominant seventh chord like this, if they use that all the time, you get a clue that they're going to do something with that. You can look at how they resolve it. If a composer constantly resolves that seventh chord down like that and constantly does it, you get a clue that they're going to take a dominant seventh chord and resolve it to what the, what's known as the submediant in the scale, the sixth, the A. So that defines a style if you see that happening all the time. So if it, the composers cannot create as if they're limited to explaining what they are doing. They don't create and thinking, well, how am I going to justify this in Walter Piston's harmony book? Or how am I going to justify this in Schoenberg's uh, 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 theory of harmony? How am I going to justify this in anybody's theory of how things should work? You, you don't think that way when you're writing. When you're writing, you write for a sound. Now, you, you use, of course, voice leading and things like that. But no composer will write a work that has to be explained in relation to any system 
that might be ill-designed to explain what that composer's doing. And contemporary composers had a lot of that. We have other other uh, 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 theories, other type of uh, analysis, musical analysis. One that's called Schenkerian analysis is now out of favor in most of the world, except in the United States. But the we crank these composers out of schools, thinking that the common practice harmony is enough for them to uh, to go whichever way they're going to go. And sometimes composers rebel. We have schools like CalArts that just kind of free forming out in California. We have other schools of the same kind of thing. You just go do your own thing and try to express your ideas. But they develop into their own little schools and what's acceptable. And if you're not weird enough in those schools, you're, you're, if you're a tonal composer out there, you're, you're completely overlooked. I had a student who was absolutely convinced that if he totally understood Schenkerian analysis, and this is a very difficult system to, to learn, that he would be able to compose. He'd be able to compose because he could apply how this Schenker looked at things and he would understand how pieces are put together. I kept trying to tell him, just write. Just write what you write. You don't, you, you're not Bach. <laughs> you're not Beethoven. You're not making your living at, at, at this. You're doing something completely different. You do this for your church group. Just write something nice. Use the chords that you know. Write something nice. If it doesn't sound right to you, extend it. If you want to get a sharper sound, more dissonance, put it in there. It's not a big deal. Remember, theory, every theory, every theoretical thing I talk about or come up with followed somehow practice. People did it first. The theory came second in art. It always works that way. Artists create, theoreticians analyze doesn't work the other way. Theoreticians don't come up with ways to create art, and artists follow that theory so they can make art. It doesn't work. When Schoenberg developed 12-tone or, or serial composition, he did it by composing and trying to find a way to break the stranglehold of, of tonality. Remember, he started this in 1921. He worked on it for two years before he talked to anybody about it. So it was 1923 before he actually even uh, exposed this to anybody. So... When Schoenberg developed a 12-tone or a serial composition, he did it by composing and trying to find a way to break that stranglehold of tonality. He had already written works that come close to it. Uh, he identified uh, as the first real atonal work, uh, having no identifiable key center. But Schoenberg penned his version of atonality. Franz Liszt wrote a piece in 1885. This is a few years. Remember, this is 21, and when Schoenberg did this, 1885, called Bagatelle sans tonality, and it was part of a work uh, for formerly titled called the Fourth Mephisto Waltz. And the bagatelle, without tonality is what it says. It's a bagatelle, a, a type of dance, and uh, is a subheading of the work. But let's hear what it sounds like. Thank you. 
Okay, if you've been listening to my program, what is it you don't hear in that entire piece? You don't hear this. Anywhere. Anywhere in that piece, you don't hear a five-to-one relationship. That's how Liszt developed this little tone row, and that's how he got this piece to be without tonality. In other words, he modulated to different key areas, but he never was in a key. He never established this, this relationship. Never. So there's no relationship established a tonic-to-dominant relationship. That's how he got around having a key center in the key while still staying within his style. Unfortunately, he didn't follow this through and, and, uh, and get even more and more abstract. He just he went off to different things. Now, this work is uh, the fourth Mephisto waltz. So you'd have to suspect that that has something to do with the devil. Well, very interestingly, we have an interval in music called the augmented fourth or the tritone, and this is the, this is the interval. Okay, it's like a, um, a Faraday Grofet used it as the donkey sound, braying donkeys in the, in the, uh, uh, in the uh, Grand Canyon suite. But it, it had always been called the diabolus, uh, Bibolicus in music, the devil in music. And the reason was it has no tonal drag anywhere. It's just that chord. There's no resolution. And where is the sound you're going to go? You're going to go here or here? doesn't have any resolution to it. So it's called the diabolicus in music. Diabolicus in music. And you're supposed to avoid that in all harmonic practice at all times. Well, Franz said, oh, what the hell? I'm writing a Mephisto thing. I'm going to put it in there, and this is going to represent the devil. Or... Anywhere he went, he could do it. He could use that diabolicus, and that was uh, one of the tricks he used in there. So, the the piece does have a lack of tonality, only because it doesn't have a tonal center. It uses tonal chords. We can analyze it, and we can uh, uh, see exactly the chords he used, and they can fit into harmonic systems. But there is no tonal center for the piece. It just doesn't exist. Other composers also tried their hand at music uh, with either no defined tonal center. Or, or a situation where more than one tonal center was represented, like Stravinsky always used, there's, there's A flat and, and uh, C major. Stravinsky used this a lot. He used a, a changing uh, tonal center. So which one is this? Is this an A flat or is this a C? What are we doing? Or is this just a C with added notes? Or is this a C chord, basic triad, and an A chord, a flat chord. So uh, that's been happened. Okay, well, Schoenberg was working with free atonality. Remember, this is, he had been working in, in atonal things before he wrote the 12-tone system. And, uh, and he was trying to find a form also that would disintegrate this idea of tonality. So he came up with a, with a bunch of different things, one of which he came up with is called Clanfarben Melodian, which is a system that defines, let's say, a melody, you know. But each one of those notes is assigned to a different instrument. So this might be a, a cello, this might be a trumpet, this might be a flute, this might be a piano, uh, this might be a, a French horn, this might be a uh, timpani, and this might be a uh, back to a uh, violin. 
We don't know. So anyway, the idea is that you use put different sounds in different instruments. And he also came up with this idea of instead of playing a melody like a like that, you would play it like this. Or like this. And that breaking up over span. In other words, you're still playing the same three notes, but you're playing them in three different registers, and it gives you the idea that it's not, they're not connected in a way. And you could do this to absolutely get extremely far out there. You could go, as some people eventually did, we went, uh, Those are all the same three notes. But you play them anywhere like that. So you break the melody up, diffuse it. He also had forms, and uh, there are forms in music. Uh, basically, A, B uh, melody, you have a, a, an A theme and a B theme, and uh, you have songs and like song and verse, that type, that's a form. And he tried to break forms up so it wouldn't be a recognizable form. He did all those different things. Now what Chopin did was he used a form uh, uh, by not having a cadence, but he reinforced the tonal feel by going back and forth in a chord succession. So I'll show you what I mean. Let's say I'm playing an A major, and I decide I want to go to E flat, and back to A major. There's no progression there. That's a succession. But if I play this enough times, your ear is going to say, oh, I know where it's going. It's going back to here. So... It acts like a cadence, even though it's not. We hear it. So, in a sense, a tonal center isn't established, but your ear momentarily says, that's where I want it to go. And that's what Chopin does in the piece. So, what do we have? We have a tonal center that gains prominence because of repetition. If we repetition, repeat it enough, your ear is going to hear that as a tonal center, even though there's no cadence. You're going you're gonna to hear that as, as where it should go. Schoenberg wanted to break that. He said we need to break that, even that repetition of a tonal center. So most of serial music is stuff that only occurs once. Because if you only write something once, your ear and there's no way to intellectually put it together with something else. Or they tied it to something so far away musically that the intervening chords wouldn't be recognized as part of the overall tonality. Okay. Uh, simple music, like folk music, it relies on repetition, likes like uh, uh, minimalism and those type of things. So I'm not going to play any examples of that. You know, uh, simple examples of folk music, you know, one. Or um, any of that stuff, repetition, and you get an idea of that's what it does. You know, uh, a to, uh, C to A. No, John Henry, that type of thing. Um, so atonality can be expressed with a style if, and uh, within a style if, and this is a huge if, if a composer has already established a style. In other words, you come to l listen to the music of a composer and you can hear this music and you say, you know, that sounds like uh, uh, Bob Brooks or that sounds like uh, Ted Peterson or that sounds like somebody else. This is a style. And if he, if the composer can reinforce that style within atonality, you would hear it as a style of that composer, even though it's atonal.
Now, what would you use to establish a style? And this is something that composers use all the time. It's called harmonic rhythm. Harmonic rhythm is what's used by composers in a personal way to establish that the piece is their piece of music. Uh, in the sense of, uh, I'll play something just very simple here. And we're gonna be in C. If I play C for four beats, always, G for four beats, always, C for four beats, always, F for four beats, G. Okay, if I wrote in that way all the time, four beats for each chord, and you came to understand that that four beats is my style, that's Ted, then that would be the way it is. So if I assign four beats to every chord change, every chord change, so we'll start in C, two, three, four, then we'll go to A, to F, to G, to C, to D, to A, to G, to C. And if I repeated that over and over, you would say, that's Ted. I know Ted because Ted always has four beats to every measure and his chords change on every beat. If I want to go and write it uh, atonally, if I want to write something atonally, and I still use four beats, see if you would hear the same thing. I'm going to start still in a C. Remember, we still, I can write chords in, in atonality. You're supposed to not to, but let's say I'll take a C augmented. So C augmented, four beats. And then I go to F augmented. And then to G uh, diminished. And then to A uh, diminished. And then A augmented. And then to C augmented. If I did that, it would be kind of into uh, trying to look at atonality in a different way. But you'd still say, I use four beats to every chord change, and that, that Ted does that. So that might be Ted wrote that piece, even though it doesn't sound harmonically like Ted's music. Other composers have done the same thing. So let's take a look and see if we can find some of those composers. Some of them are Bela Bartok, Igor Stravinsky, Alexander Scriabin, a composer you might not have heard of before, and American composer Carl Ruggles. But we're going to see if we can find some excerpts of uh, Bartok and, and Ruggles and Stravinsky, Scriabin, atonality. Now, this isn't 12 tone, this is just atonality. <laughs> Okay, that was a Bartok piano sonata. Now, Bartok is considered a tonal composer. 
Interestingly enough, though, his music isn't tonal in the common practice sense. He goes on to tonal centers, but he moves off of them very fast, and he is very rhythmic. His music is based because partly because he went out in the hills, he became the first ethnomusicologist, and he recorded all these Hungarian and Magyar folk tunes and then adopted those to his music. So that's what you're going to hear in Bartok. But it is atonal in the sense that there's no tonal center. Now let's hear what Prokofiev has to say. Okay, Prokofiev it arrives on keys, he arrives on tonal centers, but there's no tonic to dominant relationship there. And then he establishes himself on that key, and then he moves off very fast. So there is no tonal center in the sense, but there is on tones. There is, he just used tonality. But he still calls it atonal, because if you took and said, well, I'm going to analyze this in the key of A, you can't do it. it he, the whole thing has no key signature, and the uh, the... Uh, each measure is filled with accidentals. In other words, this key, the note values change, note uh, uh, change. Sometimes it's an A, sometimes it's an A flat. Sometimes in the same measure, you can have A. All in the same measure. So it's very difficult to assign a key value to any of that stuff. And let's see, what else? Who else do we have here? Okay, now we're going to listen to a Schorenberg. This is Opus 11. Uh, this is his one of his early experiments with atonality. Now, here's something interesting we find in this piece. If we take the first theme that Schoenberg did here, this is written in 1924. So he had already been working on the 12-tone system. Remember 21? He showed it to people in 1923. Here's the first melody that you hear. That's 10 tones. So he was well, uh, he'd been, remember, he'd been working on 12 tones, but here he has 10 tones before any tone repeats. So he was well on his way to developing this idea of serial 12-tone composition using the 12 tones of the chromatic scale. So as we've seen, tonality can be expressed within a style. It doesn't have to be tonality in the sense of common practice. Remember this? Doesn't have to be that. It can be... 
tonality because it's a two tones. It's not establishing a key, but it is tonally based. Uh, other things you can do. So where's the tonality? I, I played chords, but I haven't established a key. And it kind of makes sense. It ends. Okay. Remember the tonic chord, first note of the scale, basis thing. Scales and, and notes have weight. Remember, we're talking about harmonic rhythm again. They have weight. One, this first scale, the fourth, and the fifth have the most weight. They're the most weight. Most of our music is with these chords. That's it. Uh, they do other uh, tonal relationships, too. I mean, a lot of stuff is... Uh, is uh... Okay? Folk music loaded with things like that. Okay, so... They have weight. Now, when something has weight, you can use it in certain pivotal points of what you're working as a composer. And what composers start doing is they started making other chords with that same, they start giving other chords the same weight. In other words, instead of the tonic having that heavy weight and, and the most weight in a, in a scale system, they started using A, the sixth or submedian of the scale, this. That had the same weight as this tonic. So they would do this type of, this not a modulation, but this type of chord change. So the composers are saying that A has exactly the same weight as that C. When that when you start doing that, you start getting into an amorphous thing. Is this piece in C or is this piece in A? And I guess it would depend. You'd have to look on how the piece ends and how the sequence ends. So you have to analyze it differently. The normal language that we had become used to in the common practice period, Bach and, and Handel and Beethoven and... and uh, and Mozart, that's now being destroyed. It's being destroyed through use because composers are composing that way. So, style is how composers use the elements, the harmonic weight, rhythms, melodies, things that they come up with differently than other composers. In other words, they use it differently and, and add things to it or subtract things or use different combinations to make their own style. It can happen with atonality, too. But an interesting thing happens with atonality, and that's what we're going to cover next. Stravinsky has not only a distinctive harmonic style, but also a distinctive rhythmic style that developed probably while he was writing his ballet Petrushka. He'd actually monkeyed a little bit with uh, some atonal stuff before that, very small works. But when he was hired by the Ballet Russe, to write the uh, ballets uh, in Paris. He was virtually an unknown composer, and he came up with the Firebird, Petrushka, and the, finally the Rite of Spring. But, but Firebird, for all practical purposes, sounds like Debussy. So the real, his real style started hitting in, in Petrushka, and that dominated his music until his, he, he died. Even when Stravinsky wrote a tonality, there was something distinctively Stravinsky about the way he did it. Uh, but such cannot be said for most other working composers. 
The more they approached atonality and adopted serial principles established by Schoenberg, the more their music started sounding the same. It's funny, it's a very strange thing that happened. There's even a style of post-serial music called American Academic that is for uh, a lot of it is just uh, stylistically void and musically uninteresting. It's just notes. Uh, composers got into this idea where they're writing these intellectual things and putting these notes down and trying to sound abstract and adventurous, and they're really just writing dull music. So we're going to play some of that, and you can hear, uh, I'm going to play some composers from different parts of the world and see if you can discern where the composer was living when he wrote the piece. Here's the first one. Okay, here's the second one. Okay, here's the third one. Here's the fourth. And finally, here's the fifth and the last one. Now, unless you really know these composers, and I mean really know them, because uh, this would have baffled me on a test. I might have gotten one of them. The first one was by American Morton Feldman. It was written in the 30s sometime. The second one was just an improvisation by a composer named Dave Hart, but he just got on the piano and just fumbled around and did some improvisational stuff. The third one was by uh, Albin Berg. Uh, the fourth one by uh, Japanese composer Toro Takamitsu. Oh, and Albin Berg was written in, uh, in Vienna. Uh, Toro Takamitsu, obviously, Japan. And the last one was Anton Webern, one of the first guys who started the whole thing. But I defy most people 
If I put those pieces together as one piece and said this was one composer, most people would say that sounds like the same composer at different times in, the, in his life. That this was an early work and a lot. If I had to put the Webern at the beginning and said this is his early work, and he got more florid as he got uh, older and more into the music, I could have played the same pieces and you would have said that's all, you would have a very difficult time of knowing if that was a different composer. I, I could have fooled you that way. But that is one of the problems with atonality and serial music in general. Now, the, I just use piano because piano is a very exposed instrument. You're going to hear all the problems that go on it all the time. I'm going to play you a Stravinsky 12-tone piece, and I defy you to tell me that this is 12-tone. In any shape or form, it sounds like Stravinsky. So here's what we're going to hear. That work next. As I said before, you can write atonal music and still have a style and still make great music, but a lot of composers didn't. Uh, well, here's the problem with that, with that academic style of composing and what they did. Some of the music may have been intellectually complex and the overall concept strong. I remember Cage built a lot of pieces out of concept, but for some reason his concepts led to a whole different way of looking at music, and these, these necessar necessarily did that. A lot of the academic composers were simply writing in that atonal style to be quote-unquote modern and current, when in reality the, the, this was stuff was done in the early 20s and 30s, and uh, by the time it was in the 70s and people were doing it here, this abstraction that we were continuing in our schools here, it wasn't abstract anymore. Uh, music had changed. Music had moved on beyond that, uh, which uh, the rise of the minimalist showed. But soon this music could only be found. Some of this music, this abstract music, like the piano music, could only be found at universities. Audiences stayed away uh, by droves. So you could go to a teacher's convention meeting. I went to a couple and they would play, one, one or two composers would play uh, some 12-tone sounding or very disjunct music in the old style and people didn't respond well to it. Yeah, it's intellectually okay, but you know, uh, but audiences didn't respond well. Music without an audience is terrible. Nobody's gonna can't survive, and and that's literally what happened with atonality. Atonality died out. They couldn't find any audiences, even though composers were still doing some interesting things using atonal techniques. Uh, we had to change how we were doing it. Atonality isn't dead. Just like tonality. Tonality is not dead. There's a place for it. There's a place for atonality too. But that style of disjunct, unrelated, and uh, distinct related, distinctly not related tones and clusters and those type of things, 
have a limited use. And, and if you use them once or twice in a piece, that's good. If you try to write a whole piece that way, you're in trouble. So you can write atonal music. It's very simple, and I can show you how to do it. You simply play notes on the piano that are not apparently related to each other. If you know anything about keys, if you don't know anything about the piano, it's easy to write atonal music. Little children write it. They get on the piano and they... Have... Well, the child's music might not be understood. We might not be able to understand it. That doesn't mean it's not music. But you can certainly write... Okay, there's my little atonal piece. I improvise it, put it right together. It's not difficult to do if you know basic structures of music and how to do things. Now, if I wrote a two-hour piece like that, it might not be too interesting. In short little breaths, you could say, well, well where's he going to go? What's he going to do here? And if you're an adept enough player, of course, you can make things sound you know, all different types of ways, you know. Well, those effects are nice, and it's, it's, it's nice, but you have to fit this into a piece of music. Somewhere it has to fit into some kind of musical logic somewhere. So one of the things that composers needed, and these composers were losing, was an active audience. If we don't have an active audience involved with music, I mean, it, it just dies. There's nothing you can do. You can't play two or three people in your house, and they say, oh, yeah, man, you're really cool, you know, and, and, uh, I mean, there's plenty of people around doing these drumming things where they sit down and just drum and uh, do all those type of things. If that's what you're looking for, I mean, it's, it's all around you. You can find it. But if you're looking for something a little more interesting, a little more intellectually biting, then you've got to go out and seek out composers that are working that way. Okay? You just have to do it. So, along comes Schoenberg. People are writing atonality, and, and Schoenberg's developed this 12-tone system. And he had been writing free atonality. The problem with free atonality is this. It is a devilly hard thing to write. I can improvise a little bit here, and I can make some free atonality here. But to really write true free atonality with no tonal connections whatsoever is a very difficult thing. When I had the task in school to write an atonal piece, I didn't do very well. Uh, my head automatically wants to assign t tones to things and, and weight to things. It just does it. Nothing I can do about that. So these composers were writing this stuff, and it ended up that, that the, the effort with free atonality was hardly worth the effort. If you're going to write this, and you could sit and totally serialize something and do that or just improvise it. What, why not just improvise it? What, why do you write anything down? What difference does it make? 
audiences are going to hear it the same. If I wrote that down and somebody played it, nobody would say, oh, that's the Peterson uh, great uh, improvisation sonata or whatever you want to call it. They're not going to, they're not going to understand it. It's not going to be appreciated as a stylistic element of my work. If I get that disjunct, but if I have little things that I use, techniques that I use, like I use, I do use tonos. I played you that piece at the beginning that I wrote for the zombie cheerleader movie. It is a way that you can identify what I'm doing. So Schoenberg comes along and develops this 12-tone system. Remember, he's trying to break that chain, that ball and chain of tonality, that horrible, horrible tonality. Uh, that he ended up adopting towards the end of his life again. He, he decided that, sh that, that serialism was okay, but you could write tonal music in it. And in fact, Penderecki did. He made his tone rows uh, for the St. Luke Passion were actually designed to look like crosses on the, on the music paper. So when he wrote these little things, he would write these crosses. So we've got 12-tone music and serialism, Okay. Like I said, he put the whole thing down in 1921. Now, why is serialism, why is Schoenberg, why is this major in music? Well, who cares? It's abstract music. Most people don't like it. It's, it's, it's uh, difficult music. It makes people uncomfortable. It's all those things. Why? Because Schoenberg, in what he did, was the first person to find a different way to write music that wasn't dependent on the harmonic structure and the rules that had dominated Western music since before Bach, uh, tonality and the common practice system. Schoenberg was the first person to, to codify a system that broke that stranglehold that the common practice tonality had and, and all that stuff. Now, what he didn't break, there are rules for leading tones. The leading tones are called the dissonant tones and chords. Uh, that, that lead to one thing or another. So if I play a C, there's no dissonant tone here. But if I play a dominant, if I play this dominant, this is a C, and here's a seventh, okay? It's a dominant seventh. I add the seventh. That seventh wants to resolve downward, okay? Now, if I'm a C7, remember we talked about harmony. C is the fifth note of the F scale. If I'm here, if I'm in F, my fifth note is C. If I make a dominant and make that into the dominant and put a seventh in it, that seventh wants to resolve downward to the A, and the A is the third note in the F chord. So I have set five to one. Naturally, dissonances want to resolve downward, okay? Now, Schoenberg said, no, nah, that's baloney. Dissonances don't have to resolve anywhere. They can resolve anywhere they want. They can go up, they can go down, they can go sideways, they can jump two uh, notes, they can do anything. He basically said with serialism, there is no dissonance. Dissonance is gone. Remember, he'd already been through atonality. In atonality, there's no dissonance. There is, in reality, there is dissonance. Uh, you can say there's none, but, but there is. In reality, people's ears hear different dissonance. You hear this a lot differently than you hear this. Okay, our ears hear it differently. They respond differently. The way the vibrations, the notes clash together. However, if I do this and do this, there's less of a clash. Now, this is a dissonance. This is really just this. But the C moved down here. 
and it does it, it breaks that clash because the harmonic frequencies in the overtones aren't clashing. But down here, well, that's a that's a clash. All right, that's the same two notes, just reversed. Okay, so Schoenberg said, "I don't need. Don't worry about dissonance." Schoenberg had students. He had, of course, he had Al, uh, Anton Webern and he had Alban Baird. Now, both of these people composed differently. Webern's pieces, I played one little Webern piece, I'll play another one. His pieces tend to be extremely disjointed and little, little things like uh, phrases, little phrases like... Uh, Just, just, just disjointed little phrases are like little, little fleeting little things. And he'd mix things up, okay? Very, very Webern-esque. So let's hear one of those. may be disjunct, but there's something kind of haunting about Webern's music. He was the first person to really do this. So in a sense, anything you hear kind of like this in this style is, is really inspired by Webern. The other student he had was Alban Berg. Now, Alban Berg was a completely different kind of person. He was a very florid person and, and a real romantic, and, 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 but, but when he wrote music, he was very matter-of-fact. But he would write atonal music It's uh that very robust very strong so let's hear some Anton Webern and you'll hear the difference between you know, two students from the same guy we heard the Webern and now we're going to hear some Anton with some uh, uh, Alban Baird Okay, very florid, very, very Chopin-esque and very Liszt-like, extremely romantic and disjunct and tearing and, 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 and stretching at you and trying to 
evoke an, an emotional response in there. So he, uh, as opposed, now Schoenberg was kind of a heading in that same direction, but he, as opposed to Webern, uh, really wanted to make music, I mean, absolutely just blowing people away. I mean, he wanted to have this extremely florid uh, type of sound. And in fact, he wrote other other works. He wrote two of the most famous operas of, of the of the uh, early part of the 20th century, and that's Wojciech, about a, a prisoner of war, and uh, a, a German soldier in, in a prisoner situation, and a uh, w- which has got to be definitely the most unbelievable opera. If you have never seen it, you've got to hear and see this thing. It's called Lulu. Unfortunately, he died before he finished Lulu. He left sketches, and it's been completed. But, uh, uh, wow, what a work. I mean, if you haven't heard this stuff, this is something you absolutely have got to listen to. It's incredibly great. So I'm going to play. I was hoping hoping to do this whole thing of of composer's devices in in one hour. We've covered 12-tone. You know how 12-tone stuff works. I've played some examples. I'm going to go out. I'm going to play a Schoenberg piece to end this. and then uh, um, just a little excerpt from that. And then this is Ted Peterson. This has been Musical Explorations. And I will see you next week with the uh, further adventures and the disillusion now of atonality. Okay, we're going to turn Pierrot Lunaire down. That's Schoenberg's Pierrot Lunaire. And it's a fantastic piece. That piece is called Moonstruck. It's just the beginning of it, but I urge you to listen to the whole piece. This is Ted Peterson, and this is it for Musical Explorations this week. We've seen how tonality kind of fell away for the dominance of atonality. Next week, we're going to see the downfall of atonality and the rise of minimalism.